listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. You know, we live in an age of criticism, and nothing is really off limits. I was at camp two weeks ago with our high schoolers leading worship, and about midway through the week, a girl stopped me in the multi-purpose area where we were eating lunch. I was kind of walking back and forth to the aisles, talking to students, and she stopped me and she said, she said, hey, you, you, you guys, your band and everybody's doing a great job this week. Um, could I make some suggestions? Which I was like, sure. Um, this is a great time for that. Um, and so I kind of leaned in and she said, she said, Hey, you know, you know, the times when you guys are, are, when we're all worshiping together and like you, you, you were singing a song, everybody knows. And you kind of like, you kind of back away and just the whole crowd, everybody like acapella is just singing out. Like you, you step away from the mic. Could you do that more? <laughs> She's like, yeah. And I was like, I was like, I, I, mean, I could, um, and then she was like, also, could you stop playing your instrument in those moments as well? And I was like, that's all I'm doing up there is <laughs> microphone and instrument. I was like, I'm, I'm, t- maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not, she, she was, I think she was trying to just say, I want to hear, you know, we want to hear everybody singing. We love those moments when, when everyone's singing acapella, but she was like, maybe just less, like less of you. Um, we live in an age of criticism. Nothing's off limits. Um, it seems to be totally fine to criticize everything. A restaurant can go from blessed to boycotted overnight. A movies can go from a masterpiece to meme-worthy because of a clip someone pulls from the trailer even before it is released. Actors from Oscar-worthy to ostracized and books from bestseller to banned. We seem to be okay with questioning everything everything's on the table, everything from where our food comes from to who is funding the research we trust. We question everything, corporations, churches, government systems, authority, the status quo. We live in an age of criticism and nothing seems to be off limits. In most cases, we're okay with that. We're just, you know, we're finding out more about the world that we live in. We ask questions. That's how we find things out. When we see a corrupt leader and their true motives are revealed, that's a good thing. When we save ourselves 10 bucks at the movie theater because we didn't, you know, we we don't go and see a a movie that we thought was going to be good and we're not disappointed. Or when we listen back to myself leading worship and you're like, maybe I could sing a little bit less. That'd be all right for everybody. But there's one bit of criticism that we, or I would say I, can tend to get uncomfortable with. And when it comes to doubt and critical thinking in the area of faith and the church, we start to get uneasy. Maybe it's just me, but I I get uneasy. I'm fine with criticizing a politician or a movie or a store, but, but can I really be okay with criticizing or having a critical eye, or, or doubting the very thing that I have staked my identity in since I was a young boy. You know, it's like when your kids ask questions, and I don't just mean like the normal curious questions, you know, like why is the sky blue, why, you know, all that sort of stuff. Like, like when they start to ask too many questions, you know what I mean? Like too many questions, like, like um, you know, I'm usually okay with why is the sky blue, why do dogs bark, all that sort of stuff, quick answers, um, you know, all that. But when they start to dig into the real, deep, personal stuff, like, Dad, why didn't you eat your vegetables? (laughs) 
Or like, dad, why do you get to drink out of the orange juice carton? Like those personal questions, I start to get uneasy. I'm like, all right, 10 minutes, no more questions, right? Silence. We're going to play the quiet game. Is it the quiet game? It's the best game. (laughs) Isn't it what we tend to do when it comes to questions of faith? We let ourselves question every other authority in our lives. We, we, We are into the criticism. We somehow feel like those questions are off limits. When it comes to our personal faith and these types of questions are commonly more known as, um, as doubts. Or as one author coined, I love this phrase, uh, spiritual depression. Uh, when, when you've believed one thing and the honeymoon kind of phase is over, but some stuff has happened in your life and you've lived this for a while, and it kind of just feels like this dull, like glazed over of like, yeah, I, I, I believe, but man, it's not very exciting anymore. It feels a long ways away from those church camp days or any of those things. Spiritual depression. The honeymoon phase wears off and the real questions and doubts set in. Just to mention a few, is, is all of this really true? Is God really good? Can I trust the Bible that I'm reading? Was Jesus really God? How, how could a good God create such a painful world? Why do Christians say they believe one thing and act differently. Why does walking with Jesus seem so easy for everyone else, but it's so difficult for me? Why did God allow that person to suffer? Why has God allowed them to die? What's the point of any of this? And those are all sermons in and of themselves, maybe sermon series in and of themselves. But what I want to do for the next couple of weeks is, um, is to walk through this idea of doubt and, and questions of the faith. And here's, here's my goal the next, the next two weeks. I know these, today might not feel like, like your typical sermon because it will be very topical. We're going to jump around the Bible a lot. There's not going to be a, a lot of like specific read this verse type of references. But I want to I do something today um, that may not feel like a sermon. But when Wayne comes back in two weeks, you have to tell him they were sermons, all right? They were really great sermons. But here's what I want to do the next couple of weeks. Here's what I want to accomplish. I pray that you walk away with these things. First, God welcomes you into a safe relationship that's not affected by your certainty. His relationship with you is not change depending on how certain you are of his existence. He's not afraid of your questions and your doubts. That's, that's this week. That's week one. Next week, if you want to come back, uh, the healthiest and most biblical way to find hope in the face of, face of doubt is not to avoid it, but to humbly and honestly walk through it. Like I said, we'll get more practical next week. So if you leave kind of feeling like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? That's next week. You've got to come back for that. So the Bible is full of believers, faithful believers who had questions and doubts. Story after story, we see, um, we see of those who are following God. Sometimes God doesn't give them uh, direct answers, but he, he doesn't run away from them. He's, he's never left them alone in their asking. God is not afraid to answer your questions and doubts. He's not afraid to be there with you. He's not afraid of those. I won't have time to share some of these stories, but to rattle off a few before we get, before we get into the, the the big ones I want to touch. Uh, think of Jacob who wrestled, literally wrestles with God. some of you are like, man, I've been struggling with my faith. We haven't literally wrestled God yet. Okay. So he gets a name change that actually says struggle, you know, means struggling with God. Jonah, who questions God's kindness towards his enemies. Why do you want me to go to Nineveh? Do you know who those people are? Those people have, you know, don't, don't want anything to do with you, God. Those are my enemies. That's, that's not where I want to be. Nicodemus, who meets Jesus overnight and berates him with religious question after religious question. 
from a Pharisee to a rabbi. They talk back and forth, and he questions and doubts, has a hard time wrestling with those big things of faith. And then even the followers of Jesus, we see after Jesus is resurrected, he's standing there in front of the followers, and the Bible tells us um, many rejoiced and believed, but some doubted. They see the resurrected Christ right in front of their eyes, but some doubted. These, we could call them biblical mentors, people we can look to, see them gain a better understanding of God through their questions, a better understanding of their, go- of their calling through their questions. And so I've divided up into, into some categories. This is just kind of a big, you know, swooping thing across, across the scriptures. We're going we're gonna to move pretty fast. Um, the first one I labeled was questioning authority. Questioning authority. And some of you are already like, that's my category. I know that one. That's the one. For some of you who have doubt in your faith, it's all about authority. Maybe you grew up in Gen X and it was all that whole grunge music, stick it to the man kind of era. Or maybe you're just kind of built that way. When it comes to your spiritual journey, the hardest thing for you to do is to see God as an authority. And to understand that he may not owe you an answer. That seems so harsh. Maybe you've had corrupt bosses or strict parents an emotional or physically abusive spouse, your upbringing or your family of origin has wired you to question everything that has been put in authority over you. You grew up hearing, because I said so. And it's still, you still cringe when you hear that. Well, why? Because I said so. You know, earlier this week, I sent out an Instagram story that was just saying, I'm, I'm working on a, uh, a sermon on doubt and uh, questioning faith. And I was just like, for anybody, question, you know, questioning skeptics, Christians, just curious, what are some things that have been helpful or hurtful in these areas, uh, in these conversations that you've had, whether you have doubted your faith, whether you've walked away from the faith, whether you've never had faith at all to begin with. And I got numerous um, responses from, from a lot of young adults, adults, young people, like it was, it was, it was, it was pretty shocking just to see the amount of, of feedback that I got coming in. And one guy, he said to me, it was a, it was a friend of mine from way back. He said, he was always told, and maybe you've heard this, the Bible says it and that settles it. And then he would read his Bible and he goes, that's very confusing. <laughs> There would be parts of the Bible when it was, it, where the Bible was silent on something or the Bible was confusing on other things. But, but for you, asking that question was not allowed. For him, asking the question was not allowed because if he asked that question, he didn't trust the Bible. If he asked that question, he didn't trust God who ordained the Bible. and He didn't trust the people in authority who handed him the Bible. And so he, his faith was questioned. And if, if that would describe you, if that would describe you, I would say you can find a companion in the scriptures in the person of Moses. The story of Moses. Yeah, we know Moses, prince of Egypt. We know the story. But I want to take you back to the very beginning where the burning bush story happens. God speaks to Moses and he says, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground, which it it indicates that Moses did it. We're not really sure if he actually did. I I went back and looked at the scriptures. God tells him to. We're not sure if he did. Um, We think he did because he kind of goes along with the rest of it. And so he says that God says, I'm going to send you into Israel or I'm going to send you into Egypt and I'm going to, you're going to free the Israelites. You're going to go free the people of God from slavery. And what does Moses do? I'm on my way, right? No, that was Abraham. I'm ready to go. Moses said, I got some questions. His, his first question was, is there no one else that can do this? I'm a nobody. I'm going to walk in there and they're going to go, who are you? Which, I mean, 
Pharaoh would probably recognize him. But he's going to walk in there and go, nobody, is there anyone else that can go? And God accommodates him. He says, he says, they'll know who you are. I'm going to be with you. Later on, he says, you can actually take your brother Aaron with you. You can take this cool little staff that turns into a snake. You're going to be able to turn the water into blood. You're going to be able to do all these things. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about you. But then the second that Moses says, when I go, they're going to ask who I came, what authority I came in. Not, Not Pharaoh. He's not going to be concerned with that. Pharaoh's not going to see a threat coming. But when I go to the, to the Israelites, to Moses' people, they're going to say, what gives you the authority to lead us out of this place? Which is kind of an interesting question. He's like, I'm here to set you free. They're like, who says, right? Like, who says you can do this? But God accommodates the question. God says, you tell them that I am sent you. This phrase for the Israelites would thwart all other names. It's, it's listed in our Bibles many times as, as all capital letter, letters, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. He would have used that word and the Israelites would have taken notice. But notice, God doesn't ask Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, the great I am sent me. Because that would have meant nothing to Pharaoh. It would have meant nothing to him. The questions that Moses had wasn't about uh, what seemed to be the bigger problem, the enslavers, the Egyptians, kind of that whole thing going on. But his questions were more of like, how would they, the, the people of God, know that it was actually God leading them? Often when I question God's authority, when I feel that in kind of my heart and soul to go like, I, I, don't, I don't know if you really get to tell me what to do. I'm not really questioning the higher power stuff. I'm not questioning the cosmos. I'm not questioning the, the Bible school song that he's got the whole world in, in his hands. I'm kind of hoping that he's got that taken care of. I'm not questioning those things. What I am questioning is like my single square foot of space that I'm taking up on this earth, right? I'm, I'm questioning, like, what does this have to do with me? I'm usually questioning his authority over my life and the calling on my life. And while that seems so, like, individualistic, this is what Moses is saying. This is what he wants the Israelites to know. They're going to go, like, why does he care about us? And the answer is, he does care about you because you're his chosen people. Moses doesn't give an Egyptian name in the presence of Pharaoh, that, that, that Pharaoh would quite, that's not what God gives Moses. He gives him presence. Look at Exodus chapter six, chapter three, verse 16. He says to Moses, go gather the elders and tribal leaders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he's building something here appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what's been done to you in Egypt. Moses' questioning of God, his, his question of God's authority leads him not to a tyrant or to a bully God, but leads him to a more complete understanding of a personal, loving, and caring God who has concern for his people. He walks through the doubt. God asked, lets him ask the question. Moving on to our next story, this, this is, you know, this is obvious, but the story of Job. We move on through this. There's many books that have been written about doubt and faith, and they deal directly with the story of Job. A lot of pain and suffering in this world, and we're all trying to figure out how to navigate it. We've dealt with a lot of these and some of these deeper topics, even in the past sermons in this series with grief and suicide, all these deal things. I put a few books up here that you might want to, you might be interested in. Um, Philip Yancey's Where's God When It Hurts, just a classic when it comes to grief and pain. 
Um, also going even farther back, C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. And then this last one is a, is a newer one that I just recently read, published in 2019. Um, this uh, uh, Stephanie Tate. She's uh, been diagnosed with Lyme disease, and she's really, really sick and going, kind of going through. As you know, Her book, The View from Rock Bottom, is just such a – it's not a more modern take. It's not different answers, but um, maybe a more modern storytelling style for you if you're interested in that. Um, but you can't really talk about pain and suffering um, and God without talking about Job. I won't spend too much time on retelling the whole story, but we kind of knows what happens. He, in the first chapter, he kind of goes from like, I've got everything to I've got nothing. And maybe that in some ways feels like your life because then he spends the next 30 chapters asking God questions. It's, it's a longer book, but everything really, all the action happens in the first. And then you've got about 30 chapters of his friends and his wife and him kind of sitting, asking questions, wrestling with what's going on. And so maybe you felt like that, tragedy after tragedy, hurt after hurt, it all happened so fast, and you've sat in a stupor, kind of blindsided by your pain. You sit and you question, why has this happened to me? Why am I so afflicted? God, where are you? My friends are coming along, and they're telling me that I'm just not, I'm not living the right kind of lifestyle, and I need to connect to God more, and here I am just, just begging you to be connected to you. You feel like you must have done something to deserve it, but God hasn't moved. And like Job, God lets us ask these questions. He lets us complain. He hears our cries for, for as long as we want to cry them. Like I said, almost 30 chapters, he struggles with doubt and questions. Then God responds. And it's not, it's not really an answer. He doesn't go back. He's like, all right, the first thing you asked was this. Let me, let me deal with that. And like that, some of these books will help kind of like, you know, the chapters are kind of like that. You're like, you got this question. Let's talk about this question, this question, this question. Uh, there's another one I forgot to put in there. Uh, recently, he just recently passed Tim Keller, the reason for God. That's another book, just a, a great, great book from the, when we talk about suffering and reasoning, all, all of the stuff, um, God through doubt. So, uh, God responds once again. He doesn't give Job a direct answer to his questions, but it's a reminder of his presence, like he did with Moses and the Israelites. Job knows this. He's angry. He's hurt. He's bitter. He's lashing out at God, but he's already answered his own question. Back in chapter 19, he says, still, I know that God lives. Still, I know, maybe your Bible says, my Redeemer lives, the one who gives me back my life. And eventually, he will take his stand on the earth. Literally, in the scripture there, it says, eventually, he will stand on my grave. There's perspective. And I'll see him, even though I get skinned alive, I see God myself with my very own eyes. Oh, how I long for that day. Even in his affliction, in his pain and his suffering, even Job is walking through with a promise that his Redeemer lives. He's walking through hope in the face of suffering is a reminder that, that God is not moving, that God has not moved. Our next big category, we jump to the New Testament, questioning tradition and methods. I hadn't really thought about this in this way until I read in a book um, a little bit of the backstory, kind of thinking about what the upbringing of John the Baptist would have looked like. And maybe for you, if the phrase, and here it comes, I hope it doesn't bother you too much, but if the phrase, because we've always done it that way, bothers you, okay? Some of you are just like, I'm out, I'm out, right? Because we've always done it that way, if that makes your skin crawl, you might feel this one, tradition and methods. 
I grew up, like I said, in a traditional church, A-frame church, pews, everything. We sang out of the same red hymnal every single week. We sat in the same order of service. And when something did change, you better believe that it was after months, probably, probably years of board meetings and congregational votes. And then we could finally move the piano to the left side of the stage, right? I heard once a, a preacher just moved it like inches every week. And then eventually it was over there and nobody noticed. Right? I love the church of my youth. And I wouldn't be here or anywhere near a church if it weren't for that place and the people in that place. But I've also never been accused of being a traditionalist. Maybe for you, your questions center around tradition and orthodoxy and why do we do what we've done type of questions, what we've always done. I'll, I'll admit this one over and over again, guilty. Over the years, I've found some value in the sacred traditions of the church, but I'm usually always up for a new idea. Let's try something new. What could possibly go wrong, right? Okay. That's why one of my favorite characters in the Bible is John the Baptist. And I hadn't seen this until it was pointed out to me. But John wasn't a Baptist like our friends are Baptists down the road, okay? We're a different type of Baptists. This was his occupation. But he baptized people. And that wasn't the only thing interesting about John. <laughs> He's a very interesting guy. In a time when there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, just Baptists, he was baptizing people as an occupation, but he was also the son of a priest, Zechariah. Zechariah was said to be righteous in the eyes of God. John grew up as a PK. Some of you know that, know the lingo. He's a preacher kid. His dad would have duties at the synagogue. He probably grew up a lot like Corey Scott, you know, like... He's, you know, dad's always at the, he's at the church. He's up early, lock up afterward. Dad was working late hours. He had to, you know, you got to be on your best behavior when your dad's the priest. Don't embarrass your father, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those type of things, the traditions, people expect things of you. But at some point in John's journey, he breaks from the tradition. The next time we see John after Luke chapter one, when he like does like a backflip, in his mom's belly because he hears that Jesus is coming. That's, that's pretty cool. But then we don't really hear from John for like 20 to 30 years later. He's now not a traditionalist, if you call it that. He's now living in the wilderness. He's eating bugs. He's wearing animal skins. He's not exactly following the family path. He would have been, by his genealogy, on the path to the priesthood. He, he probably could have been a, uh, just walked right in and been a priest just because of who his dad was. But instead, at some point, he decides to imagine, imagine, to, to, to wander, to question, to do something different, to not be, you're not traditionally following the right. Can you imagine what the church ladies would say about John the hippie? His long hair, he's eating bugs, he's gone off the rails, right? He's like living in a van down by the river, which used to be a bad thing. <clears throat> But now it's like, that's what you, that's, that's, you made it to the top, right? Living in a van down by the river. So he ends up actually being a catalyst for the ministry of Jesus. He's preparing the way for Jesus. He baptizes Jesus. Jesus ascends, like just disappears as he comes out. This has to be proof that he's, that he's seen the Messiah and that there's something big and new and different happening. All these unorthodox ways that were about John, he's in the right place. But then... As it seems, all of his questions are answered. All of his non-traditional, unorthodoxy pays off. We see him again. Fast forward to Luke chapter 7. He's still got questions, big questions. He finds himself in prison, which is where he would die. 
He, he ends his, he sends some of his disciples to question Jesus. He's got these questions. This seems like the end for him from his prison cell. He's not likely getting back out into the streets. He's no longer a baptizer. He's now uh, going to be beheaded for all of his unorthodox ways. And he starts to question, was it actually all worth it? So he sends his disciples to talk to Jesus. And what does he, what does he have them ask? Are you the one that we're, we were waiting for? Are you the long-awaited Messiah? Or do we look for someone else? Do you imagine how, like, how, how big of a question that is? For John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus the Messiah, asked the question, should we be waiting for another Messiah? In this moment of just like total vulnerability... Are you found in the traditions and the methods of my father's religion? Do we need to go back to the sacrifices? Do we need to go back to the temple and the synagogues? Or are you truly doing a new thing? I thought it was, but now it feels like from this prison cell, it doesn't feel very new. It feels kind of painful. It feels like suffering. It doesn't feel like it's going to end well. Questioning traditions and methods of God helped John see more. The, the real work of the Messiah. Jesus told him, you go tell John. He says, disciples, you go back and say, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. You see, see God in the power and the work of Jesus. No matter how unorthodox the path was to get there, see the power of God. The next big category, we can jump to Peter and the disciples questioning expectations. Have you ever felt like when you signed up for this Christian thing, when you became a believer that you were sold some bill of goods? Maybe, maybe there was, you know, you were told that all your problems would go away. Or that like when you became a believer, like bags of money would just fall out of the sky. And you'd have to be careful because it might hit you in the head. Like, watch out, you're going to be blessed so much beyond comprehension. You'd have a hedge of protection around you if you prayed the sinner's prayer. Maybe your expectations came from a, a TV preacher or a celebrity influencer. Like, you know, the ones where everything is all shiny and blessed and perfect looking. And you're like, I want that in my life. I want to live the blessed life. Maybe your biggest questions come from expecting your life to look like something that's different than what it actually looks like today. The, the, the Christians you seem to see uh, have happy lives. And you only find out when you start to live the life in pursuit of Jesus that they're struggling too. And we're all struggling. We're all trying to figure this out. And you look and you see the church is full of hypocrites and all of, you know, college minister drinks out of the orange juice carton and stuff like that. Like just a mess, right? If, if that's how you feel, you're not the only one with questions of expectations versus reality. Think about the disciples, for instance, especially Peter. This guy was all in for Jesus, absolutely all in. He was, he was ready to get rid of the Romans, right? I mean, this dude's pulling out swords against a bunch of Roman soldiers. And a fight he probably is not going to win, but he's ready. He's ready to go. He's ready for God to bless Israel again. He's ready to rule in this new kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish on earth. But Jesus never did any of that. The expectations were different than what actually happened. He constantly walked away from the crowds. He said cringy and confusing things to make people leave. He was like, wow, this crowd is pretty, pretty big. Why don't you guys eat my flesh and drink my blood? And they're like, ah, no thanks. Okay, Jesus, this was your moment. Why are people, why are people leaving? 
He fought more with the Jewish religious leaders than he did with the Romans. And for Peter, I mean, it seemed like you can imagine him looking from a distance. You can see him watching Jesus be completely and totally, uh, you know, passive as the government and the religious leaders come to, to kill him. Peter and the others had their expectations shaken. Imagine after the crucifixion, when Peter goes back to fishing, everyone's stunned and confused. What's going on? You think, you think that Peter has a few questions? Was it over? Was it real? Was this all just some kind of a dream? Did we get duped? Did we risk everything in our lives for nothing? Did we just spend three years with a crazy guy and now we're going to just go back to fishing anyway? What was all of that? The resurrection and the Great Commission would answer these questions. Forty days later, the Holy Spirit would come and completely shatter expectations. The questions, the doubts, the recalculating. They didn't disqualify the disciples, but they led them to a better understanding of the kingdom of God. One who will get honorable mention in our message today is Thomas. We, we all, Thomas gets picked on because he ends up getting the nickname Doubting Thomas. That's really rough. <laughs> Because by indications, all of the disciples are sitting there staring at the wall, right? They're all just like, what just happened? They didn't go, Jesus is alive. Let's go tell the world. No, they're waiting, they're thinking about it. But Thomas, I mean, he, he doubles down, you know. Thomas, Thomas really did what most of us would have done. If you live in Missouri and you grew up in the show me state, that's our, you know. He had seen miracles. He had followed Jesus for three years. But now he just wants proof. He's like, I saw him die. I want to see him alive. Better yet, I want to see the nail marks in his hands and I want to see the spear mark in his side. I want to touch those nail marks and that spear mark. Have you ever given God ultimatums? Thomas says, if I don't get that proof, I won't believe it. God, if you don't answer this, Jesus, if you can't heal, I... I, I, I think God is too kind to laugh at us in those moments because that would be very cruel. But I also think he's, he's way too kind to give us exactly what we demand in our ultimatums. A great theologian once said, just because he may not answer doesn't mean he don't care. Thomas doesn't get an immediate answer. He doesn't get immediate proof of the supernatural in what must have been the longest week of Thomas's life. Notice that Jesus lets him wait a week. Jesus could have appeared right then and said, you want proof? Check me out. But he doesn't. He waits a week. A whole week, what must have been the longest week of Thomas's life. He gets his proof. He doesn't storm out on the other disciples. He's like, come and find me when you get more proof. Come and find me when he's with you. Bring him to me. He stays with the disciples. He listens to them telling their stories over and, oh, you should have seen it. It was amazing. It was like, it was like he was, he's alive. You know, he, he died and then there he was. And he's just the whole time over in the corner like, you got to see it. I, I haven't seen it yet. Maybe you feel that way as well. You're listening to other people's blessings and healings, knowing that you still haven't received an answer. Listening to the miracle that God gave to them but hasn't given to you listening to the testimonies of God's faithfulness and love when you feel alone and wavering in your faith and doubts. A week of silence, Thomas sits. Then he gets his answer. He gets his proof. Thomas touches Jesus' hands and Jesus' side. And then Jesus says this to him, which is hope for us all. It says, Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me 
and yet have believed. See, the questions that Thomas asked brings him face to face with his Savior. His honesty and his confession brings him through his doubts and forms, forms him into one of church history's greatest and well-traveled missionaries. It says that It's said that he had traveled through India preaching the good news of Jesus. We're even told that much like his Savior was pierced, I think these stories parallel so well, much like Jesus was pierced in the side of his crucifixion, Thomas would actually be martyred at the end of a spear for his faith. From doubting the Christ to dying for Christ. Thomas grew. Thomas changed. Not by avoiding or silencing his questions or saying, no more questions, we can't talk about this anymore, but walking through the doubts. Some scholars have identified that phases of a spiritual journey. There's all different ways that you can describe this, but we all know that we kind of walk through phases. And some, some would even talk about like the whole Bible as a spiritual journey, from the garden to the fall to paradise. Or like uh, one, one Old Testament scholar talks about the different kinds of Psalms. We've been jumping in and out of the Psalms throughout this series, the different kinds of Psalms. Psalms of orientation, where the world is great, the world is blessed, I'm living the right life and everything's fine. Psalms of disorientation, where everything just seems kind of crazy discombobulated. The Psalms of new orientation, where the psalmist learns something about God through, and by the end, they see God in a new light. But Christians, Christians think about the pattern of, of life, crucifixion, resurrection, these kind of, these patterns that we go through in life. And, and, and even the more modern terms, if we want to put those to them, we talk about construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. You think about those words. And if you're a construction type of a person, like if, you, if you're in construction, you know what these words mean. Okay? And, and for you, maybe you saw one of those words and you're like, I don't want any part of this. Just stick with me for a second. The original, the, the construction faith, the original faith that you were handed, inherited, that you came to know. Maybe you grew up in the church. So your construction was Bible stories and Sunday school and flannel graph and all of that sort of stuff. That's my story. And youth group, children's church. Or if, or if you didn't grow up in the church. It's however you came to know Christ, whatever was handed to you, whether it was a campus ministry or maybe it, was, maybe it was here at Northside. Someone sat down and explained the gospel to you for the first time. You construct a worldview. You construct a view of Jesus as that first faith. Someone else shared the faith with you. You will inherently borrow stuff from the people that teach you. Maybe it's a grandparent or a parent. And then you move through your life and you come to this phase, which we could call the phase of, of deconstruction. This is the point in life where you, you start to reassess some of those inherited beliefs. It's like a house. When you, when you, look, you move into a house and you're just kind of like, we've been here for a while. I think that entryway needs to be a little bit bigger. I think that we need to change some things here. We need not, not to just appease what I'm thinking. I think it would be a lot easier. Yeah, of course, some people go on the path of deconstruction to accomplish that. They want, the, they want what they want. But if we talk about it in this, this faith journey, in our faith journey, we learn and we grow and we accept the things that we're handed. But, but we, we start to think for ourselves. We tell our seniors as they graduate high school, I give them like a little wooden spoon and I say, it's time to eat with your own spoon. Just like a baby has to learn from eating with their hands or from somebody else feeding them to eat with their own spoon. And so you look at life and the teachings of Jesus and what you were handed and how those have gone, those who have gone before you have gone and followed or not followed, and you start to take things apart. Deconstruction is not demolition. It's not demolition. Maybe for some it is. 
And that's, if that's the goal, then that's probably what you'll get. If you bring a wrecking ball to a house, you're probably going to do more damage than you wanted to. Deconstruction is starting to take some pieces apart, take it apart, see what tradition exists. The, the, the action doesn't, this action doesn't line up with this belief and the scripture's taken out of context or this scripture's not even in the Bible. You know, we say a lot of things that aren't even in the Bible, but they sound like they're in scripture. And then there's reconstruction. This is the new, hopefully more biblical, Jesus-centered faith that you live after you've walked through this journey. These three phases can all happen at once. They can all be happening at one time. You can be in different phases at different times, but the goal is the same each time, to rethink, to reconstruct, to grow, asking questions and learning through our doubts. And I want to acknowledge that word deconstruction because I think it's been weaponized. And so a lot of people just think like deconstruction equals deconversion. But we're working with college age and young adults. And the majority of the messages I got this week were from people under the age of 30 that said, when I said that I was deconstructing, everybody thought that I was deconverting and everybody disappeared. Some use it that way. Some use it synonymous with that. But this morning, I'm just, I'm choosing to assume the best when I hear someone say that their spiritual journey is in this phase. The messages I received, one, one, one said this, people assume that questioning my childhood faith was easy for me, that I just wanted to sin more, that I was just trying to get people's attention. Hey, everybody look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm questioning things. I'm unorthodox. One said it this way, I'll quote her, says, uh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done to admit that I wasn't certain. And the people who I thought would offer me the most grace were the quickest to shut me out. Church, we take the easy way out when we shut down or shun those who would use this word deconstruction to describe their walk. I love how Joe Terrell said it in Outreach Magazine. He said, depending on who's using the word, deconstruction can mean a complete demolition of Christian belief a critical reappraisal of one's faith tradition, or an honest acknowledgement of doubt and questions. That's a pretty wide range of definitions. And the only way you can know is not to turn and run from questions and doubts that other people have or that you have, but to lean in. I know that I've been pretty guilty of jumping to conclusions, to be brutally honest with you, and I don't have time to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I asked for two weeks. <laughs> With doubt, deconstruction, questioning. I asked for two weeks. I was like, Wayne, when can you disappear for two weeks? Like, uh, and I'm kind of regretting that now because it's been, this has been a really heavy week to just dive into this from my own doubts and my own uncertainty to my own questions to people that are really close to me that I love, that I've been in community with, that have struggled with this. And the response of the church has caused them to just not want anything to do with this place or any other established building or religion. It was heavy. My dark nights of the soul, my uncertainty, the pain of seeing loved ones, knowing that even some of my own actions in the past, working in my church my whole career, some of my own actions, some of the students that I've worked with, that I've caused some of that because when they came up with big questions and trusted me with asking those questions, I was like, you know, don't, don't ask that question. Like I treat my kids. Don't. We're done asking questions. Let's go have some fun. But knowing now and seeing through scripture and wrestling and struggling with this time and time again, God has showed that he is not afraid of questions that he doesn't shy away from followers. He doesn't shy away from his doubting followers. God welcomes you into a safe relationship. That's not affected by your certainty. He's not afraid of your questions. When I first came to Northside, there was a, a unique phrase 
that they kept saying from the stage. And I was like, I, I love that phrase because I, I haven't really heard it anywhere else. And maybe if you've been around here, you're going to recognize this immediately. But it was usually during communion time. And they would say something along the lines of, if, if you're not a believer and you want to let the trays pass, we respect your journey towards Christ. Anybody ever heard Corey say that? Respect your journey towards Christ. I love that. You know what that is? That's an acknowledgement that some of us are constructing faith. And it's all brand new. Some are deconstructing or doubting. Some have a renewed and reconstructed time and time over again. But we're all in this together. Striving, encouraging, growing, walking a journey together. We respect your journey towards Christ. Even if that journey doesn't walk right alongside my journey. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a cut and run on you. Over the past three years, I've probably read this book six times. <laughs> it's a book by a guy named A.J. Swoboda. If you've heard me preach, I've, I've quoted him many times. It's a book called After Doubt. As a matter of fact, if you buy this book and read it this week, you don't have to listen to my sermon next week. There you go. There's two copies on the shelf in my desk. First come, first serve. If you want it, go get it. Not right now. Don't leave. I've given away probably 20 copies of this book. I love it. It helps kind of frame this idea of the spiritual journey and walking. And he starts his book in a really, really great way. How many of you Lord of the Rings fans? Okay. The Hobbit fans that he starts, he starts with a, a snippet from the Hobbit, an unexpected journey. It's when Bilbo sees Gandalf, you know, Gandalf kind of ducks down and comes into his little Hobbit hole there. And he, he tells him, he says, He says, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging. And it's very difficult to find anyone. Hard hard for people to walk this road. Bilbo replies to him. He says, I should think so in these parts. We are plain, quiet folk. I have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. They make you late for dinner. I can't think of anybody. I can't think of what anybody sees in them. Not interested. Gandalf says, you'll have a tale or two of your own when you come back. And if you've seen the movie, you see the scene, Bilbo kind of puffs on his pipe and he's contemplating. He's like, I do like to tell stories. You love a good story. And then he asks this question, can you promise that I'll come back? No. And if you do, you will not be the same. Avoiding questions doesn't help us grow. Avoiding the journey doesn't help us grow. Walking through doubt might make us late for dinner. (laughs) But in the end, the work that Jesus can do in your heart when you humbly and honestly accept that you have doubts and questions and you don't bury them, you won't find a God who's scared of your questions and doubts or who's offended by your deconstruction. You won't find a God who treats you like an outcast because you didn't follow the script. You won't find a God who shuns you like maybe some in the church have. You will find the one who Paul describes as he writes to his letter in the Ephesian church, the one who can do immeasurably more than we can ask. That word means beg, crave, demand, question, than we can ask or imagine. Jesus said it this way, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And if you do, you will not be the same. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for anyone in this room who is crippled with doubt.
I pray that through your word and through these mentors that we see in the Bible, that you would teach us that you are constantly remolding us, that you've made us a new creation in you. And we shouldn't be scared. We shouldn't be scared that you will lash out if we ask you a question. You're a good father. He wants good things for his children. Lord, would we take our doubts, take our insecurities, take our lack of certainty to you. And as we live that out in community, would we be a church? Would we be a church that's not described like David describes his enemies surrounding him, but a church that's surrounding people in love who are struggling, who are hurting, who are doubting. Convict us to be that church. In Christ's name we pray. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.